But as far as it depends upon you, as you are able, because you are walking in the center of God's will, filled with compassion and forgiveness and mercy towards people, be at peace with all men. Now, a peaceful relationship obviously is a two-way street, and God is just reminding us, at least from our way, the street needs to be open. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in chapter 12 of our study of the book of Romans. In this chapter, we have looked so far at having our minds renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit and through that same Spirit receiving and operating a number of spiritual gifts. Today, as Dr. Brogy continues a message entitled, The Christian and Retaliation, we look at our interrelationship with other believers. Sometimes that can be easy, other times not so much. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl. Jesus said that we are to treat people with the same compassion and we are not to be haughty in mind. And so Jesus showed the same care, love, and attention to a woman at a well who was filled with a life of adultery as he did to that cultured, educated man, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3. On the cross, he was as caring to the thief, bleeding and dying there next to him as he was to his own mother. He was as patient in the Gospels and his dealing with Judas, who hated him, who opposed him, who was the son of opposition, as he was with the beloved John, who loved him deeply. This, by the way, is a very similar command that you find in Philippians and all the way through Paul's epistles. For instance, in Philippians 1.27, the apostle wrote, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Philippians, like in Romans 12, 16, God is calling us to behave in a way that is consistent with the gospel. We are to live in a lifestyle that is consistent with the gospel. He said it this way to the church at Ephesus. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He told the Colossians this, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed. To the church at Thessalonica, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. One of our greatest testimonies as Christians is our spiritual integrity. But when we live like the world, when we blur gender distinctions, when we lie, when we cheat, when we are immoral, when we are no different from the world, then we're not living a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have nothing to offer the world. You see, the great seeker-sensitive movement in this country says, in essence, to win the world, we need to become like the world. And so they design their services even with worldly, godless music in it. Why? Because they want to win them. That's not the way you win the world. You may bring them to your church, you may fill seats, but you will not win them to genuine salvation. No, it's our distinctiveness from the world. It's our differentness. It's our saltiness. It is our light that dispels darkness that wins an unbelieving world. And so let me read all of Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, 
I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's what we're talking about here in our text in Romans. Standing firm in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If you know Philippians, this is the very first hint that there was even a problem in the church because it's one of the healthiest churches in all the New Testament. And when he comes to the first chap- fourth chapter, he's going to mention two women who are squabbling, and he'll actually mention them by name. And God knows that Satan loves to divide God's people. He doesn't want unanimity. The devil has a threefold ministry. He comes to destroy, he comes to deceive, and he comes to divide. And if he can divide the people of God, he will. But we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Now, strife in a church does not always come from such flagrant sins like adultery or stealing or drunkenness. In fact, strife, usually amongst the people of God, comes from a loss of focus where they have forgotten what it is that God has called them to be and what he has commissioned them to do. They have lost their vision, and so they become inward. And when their focus is inward and not outward towards a lost, unbelieving world, which is the thrust of our whole passage to make us effective towards those people, when they've lost their vision, all they can do is see the faults and idiosyncrasies in their brother. But Jesus gave us a great commission. And when the great commission becomes your commission, not my commission as a preacher, not the evangelist's commission, not the missionary's commission, but your commission as a member of the body of Christ, because it is yours, that God has personally called you to go into this lost world and to win the lost, then and only then will you be consistently filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, He is a unifying Spirit. And so when you go into local churches that are engaged in winning the lost for Christ, their focus is outward and not inward. And they do not begin to see that division that so many churches see. So we're to strive together for the hope of the gospel. You know, during the Second World War, they said that you could often tell where their troops were at by the kinds of things they complained about. When they complained about the food or the housing, the generals knew they were not in the thick of the battle. But when they said, send us ammunition, send us backup, we need more supplies, then they knew they were in the thick of the battle. And you go into a church and you hear some person complain all the time about the scuffs in the wall and the dirt on the rug and this and that, all the little things that bother them, you're speaking to someone who's not in the battle. They're on the sidelines. But you get them out there in the battle. You get them to contend for what Jude calls the faith once delivered to the saints for all time, and everything begins to change. So he says, be of the same mind toward one another. But while he wants us to be unified and not divided, neither does he want us to be partial and proud. So notice what he adds here. Do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Pride has no place in the life of the believer. And one way of guarding yourself of a more holier-than-thou attitude and spirit towards an unbelieving world is that you ought to be willing to associate yourself with what Paul here calls the lowly. I like the King James here because it's a little more literal to the Greek New Testament though it's a little more wooden, but follow it. It says, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. In other words, come down off of your high horse with that patronizing air, associate, condescend, 
It's used only two other times in all the New Testament, and it's a word that means to be swept up or carried away by something. Here he's telling us how we ought to be carried away. Sometimes in the other two occasions, it's used negatively. Like in the book of Galatians, it said in Galatians 2.13, the rest of the Jews joined him, Peter, in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away in their hypocrisy. Barnabas was carried away. He was associated, same Greek word, swept up, carried away, and the hypocrisy that Peter was engaged in and the way they treated Gentile Christians versus Jewish Christians, they were not consistent. And that's really surprising for a guy like Barnabas because if you know, his birth name was that of Joseph. But the apostles gave him a nickname, Bar, Hebrew, son of Barnabas, son of encouragement. But he had been carried away and had lost perspective and he got caught up in hypocrisy and he was not consistent in his dealings with Gentiles as he had been done with Jews. The other place the word is used is 2 Peter 3.17. Let me read it to you. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. He doesn't want us to fall from our steadfastness. Of course, he's not talking about losing salvation. That's impossible in the New Testament. You cannot lose something that is eternal. And if you've read Peter's epistle, he affirms the eternal security of the believer. But while you cannot lose your salvation, you can lose your steadfastness, your ability to stand strong, your victory, your consistency. And so in this case, he says, don't be carried away by teachers who are not true and faithful to the word of God, who are knocked off center of sound orthodox teaching. So the three usages in the New Testament, this word speaks of things that we ought to do and things that we should not do, things that we should be carried away with and things that we should not be carried away with. Jesus was carried away by being associated with the lowly. Paul says to the church at Philippi that Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The King James says, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Christ came down so that we could go up. He didn't hang on to his high position. He was willing to leave the glory and splendor of heaven and to take on our humanity and to die on a cross. And so when Paul speaks here of associating with the lowly, he's not talking about courting humble people, so so to speak, with some patronizing air. The text in no way suggests that. Look again at verse 16. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate condescend, be carried away with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. God wants you to associate with people who in no way can pay you back. See, there's a few kinds of pride, I suppose, that are worse than snobbery. And snobs are obsessed with status. They divide people into upper class and the lower class the people who are famous and people that no one knows, people who are educated and uneducated, rich and poor, those who are cool and those who are nerds. And that kind of thinking sometimes comes into the fellowship of the saints. And again, he's dropping this bomb here as to how we should treat each other because he knows if we can't treat each other right in here, we'll never be able to do it out there. And so this snobbery is what makes so many churches in the nation homogeneous when the community around them is not. 
Why? Because they only think about reaching out and inviting people who are just like they are. And they are spiritual snobs. It is snobbery that drives the seeker-sensitive theology of that whole movement. Now, please understand, Paul is not saying, well, associate with the lowly. This must mean you need to get involved in some program so you can ease your conscience of snobbery. You know, go serve in a soup kitchen. kitchen. Go serve in a food pantry. Uh, go minister to those who are in prison. Now, those are all good things, and God may call you to do all those things. But that's not the real test. Ministries are like that are needed, but that's not the real test. The real test is how you deal with people 52 weeks out of the year. If there is someone in this church that you would not invite into your home and have a meal with and fellowship with, then you are a snob. Associate with anyone and everyone. Do not be wise, literally do not be high-minded in your own estimation. Let me put it into simple English. Are you stuck on yourself? Being wise in your own estimation, being high-minded is a person who's consumed with self and all of their thoughts are on themselves. And the world may think you're a big shot, but there are no big shots in the body of Christ. And in this day of celebrity Christianity, we need to hear that. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said this, I often think that God must have been looking for someone small enough and weak enough for him to use, and he found me. That's the heart of what the apostle is saying here. Becoming a gracious servant, able to become a blessing to the Lord, to anyone and to everyone. And so as we think about our relationship with the lost, number one, we are to disarm our opposition. Number two, we are to mind our manners. Third, we are to withhold our revenge. We are to withhold our revenge. Look now, if you will, at verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Do you know what the word never in the Greek New Testament means? Never. You might want to underline that word, circle it in your mind. He doesn't say most of the time. Our natural tendency is to want to return evil for evil. If someone is short with us, to be short in return. If they're ugly with us, to be ugly in return. But he says, never pay back evil for evil. Now, forget evil for just a moment. Talk about, let's talk about just being incompetent. My wife came home from Walmart not long ago. She said, you know, honey, there was this guy who was in his 70s, and he just gave this dear lady in the garden department so much trouble. His plant was not what he thought it should be, and he let her know, and he sat there and went on for about three minutes, and she said, if the Lord wants us to be old, I never want to be known for being one of those old, grumpy people. And I said, amen. I was in Chick-fil-A recently, and this lady, her order didn't come out right. And that lady, let the dear lady behind the counter who kept saying, well, it's my pleasure to serve you, and just being so sweet, and she gave her a piece of her mind that she couldn't afford to lose. So just forget evil for a second. Let's just talk about even incompetence. But he brings it down to evil. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 
God wants us to live with a sense of compassion and mercy and forgiveness where we are quick to show mercy and compassion and forgiveness to other people. By the way, the identical command is given in 1 Peter 3.9. Peter there said, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, I hope you know that revenge is just a form of unforgiveness. It's wanting to get even with someone. And remember, Peter is writing to a church where they were already experiencing some severe persecution, but it was about to get really bad within the next two years. And God who knows the future and God who knows what Nero is going to do when he burns the slums of Rome because he wants to polish them up like new, the people come unglued and so Nero blames the Christians and to show that he did it, he took the Christians. He used to talk about fire coming down from heaven out of their scripture and, and he dipped them literally in oil and he made them human torches in the garden. And so God who knows the future was preparing his people and God who knows what you will encounter tomorrow at work or at school or at home is preparing you, he's preparing me. And if we have ears to hear, we need to hear it. Never pay back evil for evil to everyone. See, there's three levels in which you can respond to people. The first level is when you give evil for good. That's the satanic level. The second level is when you give evil for evil. That's the natural level. Anyone can do that. But God wants us to give good when we've been shown evil. That's the supernatural level. Please understand, if your goal is to get even, that is exactly what you will do. You will get even. If a man hates you and persecutes you and says all kinds of evil against you because you are a believer in walking with Jesus Christ, you say, I'm going to get back, I'm going to get even, that's what you do. You come down to where he is, and you live on the natural plane, the natural realm. I heard of a man who received a telephone call at 3 a.m. in the morning. His irate neighbor says, I want you to know that your dog is barking. It's 3 a.m., and he is keeping me up. And he said, well, thank you, and he hung up the phone. The next night, he called his neighbor at 3 a.m., and he says, I want you to know I do not have a dog, and he hung up. You see, we want to get back. That's in our fallen Adamic nature. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. God calls us to live on a different plane. Look at verse 17, the second part of it. Respect, don't look at me, look at the text. Respect what is the right in the sight of all men. Circle that word respect. It's actually two Greek words brought together. The word hupa, which is our word that we get our word first or before, and naeo, which means to think. It means literally to think beforehand or to think first. And Paul is basically saying think before you act. And so he says very specifically in verse 18, if you will notice, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, Paul recognized that there would be times when you would try to reconcile even with those who hate you and that they would not receive your move towards reconciliation. And you can't take responsibility for them. I tell this to couples all the time. I said, you may feel like your spouse is 99% wrong and you're 1% wrong. You have to take responsibility for your 1%. You have to deal with your sin. And Jesus came to this earth not to change your neighbor, 
He came to change you. And some of us, we come and we listen to sermons, and I call them vicarious sermon listeners. And they meet me almost weekly, and they say, Pastor, I wish so-and-so were here today to hear this sermon. And sometimes I want to say, but what did God say to you, my friend? God didn't come to change your neighbor first. He came to change you. He came to change me. And listen, married couples, don't be concerned about your mate in terms of what they will do. You have to ask what you are going to do. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be it all be at peace with all men. Sometimes it's not possible. That's why he gives the condition that he does. Sometimes you can go as humbly as you can be. And with sincerity of heart, you can take responsibility for yourself and ask for forgiveness and they won't give it. I read about one couple who were having a quarrel and, and they ended up not speaking to one another and they gave each other the silent treatment. And again, remember, revenge is nothing more than unforgiveness. And a week into their mute argument, her husband wrote her a note and said, Honey, I need to fly to Atlanta tomorrow. It is a very important meeting, and it's very important to our financial picture as a family. Please wake me up. You know the difficulty I have in getting up. He woke up the next morning. His flight had long been gone. It was already 7.30. He saw his wife up and walking around. He couldn't believe it. And just before he got ready to ream her out, he saw a note on his pillow, and it said, it's 5 a.m., wake up. <laughs> God has called us to peace. Now, we can apply this to believers amongst each other, but let's take it into the realm of which it's speaking, especially our dealings with unbelievers, because we will make enemies. When you are like light, sometimes you shine in their eyes and they don't like the light. Jesus said some men will not come to the light because they love their evil deeds. When I preach, I make people mad. I know that because I get their letters and they tell me what they think of me. It's okay. You're going to make some people mad. But you are not to make them mad because you have been obnoxious. You are to make them mad because you've been godly. But listen, sometimes because you stand for what's right, and we live in a day of decaying morals, and you stand for what is right and true and honorable to the Lord God, you're going to make some people mad. Jesus said in John 10, 34, that his message didn't always bring peace. Sometimes it brought a sword. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. If you think about Paul's life in nearly every city he went, he created what seemed to be a riot. But as far as it depends upon you, as you are able, because you are walking in the center of God's will, filled with compassion and forgiveness and mercy towards people, be at peace with all men. Now, a peaceful relationship obviously is a two-way street, and God is just reminding us, at least from our way, the street needs to be open. And to underscore that, he quotes here in verse 19 from Proverbs chapter 20. Notice, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Here's the Old Testament quote. Some of you are new to the Bible. You see the change in typeset here in the NAS, reminding you this is from the Old Testament. It's from Proverbs 20. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now remember, this is not an exhortation to nations dealing with nations. We will come to that. We will talk about war and capital punishment and issues like that when we come to Romans, the 13th chapter. He's addressing in the context the way individuals deal with one another, and he says, we are never to take revenge. Now let me say parenthetically while we're here, because the question always comes up if I don't address it, that he is not speaking here to the issue of self-defense. God speaks to the fact that we can defend ourselves. Scripture must interpret Scripture because the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So, for instance, in dealing with property rights, in Exodus chapter 22, God said this, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. When a person stole, the thief was simply required to restore what he had stolen plus an additional penalty. And this, the fivefold and fourfold restitution was understandable because when you took a man's animal, you took away his ability to provide for his family. And so God wanting to deter animal theft gave a very strong penalty. But listen to what God says in the next two verses about self-defense. He says, if the thief is caught while breaking in, and we'll see in the next verse, he's talking about at night. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there is no blood guiltiness on his account. If it's dark, especially in a day when there's no electricity, and someone breaks into your house at night, and you can't tell if the man is there to kill you or to steal from you or to do both, And not knowing, you defend yourself, and in the process of defending yourself, you kill the man. God says you're not guilty. But then he quickly adds, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. When it is clear in the light that he's not there to kill, but he's there to steal and to steal only, God says you have no right to take his life. Now, if you don't know what's happening, you don't know if he's trying to kill your wife and your children, you have the opportunity and you can have a clear conscience. But if it's apparent, like that man in Texas a few years ago, it made talk radio across the nation. And there were two men breaking into his next-door neighbor's house, and he promised to watch his next-door neighbor's house while he was away, and he called the police. He said, I've got my gun. They're breaking into my next-door neighbor's house. I'm going to shoot him. They said, don't shoot. Wait, we're close. Just give us a second. I'm going to shoot him. Don't shoot. Wait. Boom, boom, boom. And two men dropped dead. Now, under Texas law, he was exonerated, and Sean Hannity and all these talk show hosts were saying he had a right to defend himself under Texas law. He may have been exonerated under Texas law, but he was not exonerated under God's law. He had blood on his hands. And when man's law does not match God's law, that's a bad law and it ought to be changed. God makes it very clear that there is a time when indeed we can defend ourselves. When Lot is captured by his enemies, Abraham comes with force to rescue his nephew. God wants us to be unified and not divided so that as Christians, we can effectively serve him and at the same time grow in our relationship with him. So listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 12 entitled, The Christian and Retaliation. Download the Search the Scriptures app available at the iTunes store and Google Play Store. 
There you can listen to the entire Roman series, as well as many other books Dr. Brogy has preached from in the past. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. And for today's program, ask for number ROM61. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures also by calling that same number, 877-787-7478, or give online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or using the Search the Scriptures app. Your generous donations play a role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the gospel. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at the Christian and retaliation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.